Well, there's a reason why every drug bust that's a cartel bust at the border doesn't always lead to El Chapo or doesn't always lead to his son or anything like that. And it's well, because those fucking there's... people, well, you realize what's going to happen if those people even breathe a word. Yeah. It's not just, they know that they're dead, but it's not just them. It's literally anybody that they've ever met or talked to or shares their name. Uh, but even at that point, if they were in there and they're like, El Chapo made us do this, he told us personally to do that. Chapo's not ever going to get touched in that scenario. So maybe in that sense, El Chapo's just like, yeah, fucking give him my name. Yeah. Hey, here's three business cards given to him. Yeah, exactly. But it's no matter what it is in life, there's always that drive. And even something that we've looked at here recently, it's the drive that's in the person, depending on whatever circumstance they are in life to really become like an empire. Okay. I was wondering how you're going (laughs) to, okay. And whether you're dealing drugs, uh, whether you're a, a tech bro, a pharmaceutical rep, or even um, an important hub on a extremely um, important like trade trade well, highway or intersection it, of trade routes. Yeah, it didn't even start out that way. It started out as nomads. Yeah, and then the nomads got better and better, and that's why we've taken this long-winded approach to introducing our topic this week, which is going to be possibly one of the coolest cities that I would love to go visit. I I have so many thoughts, and I don't know where I'm going to fit them in here. It's just going to come as... Yeah, we'll find it. Yeah, but... Okay, so what... The thing that I wanted to talk to, I had no idea, like... When did I take this picture? This had to have been, like, three months ago. And I, <laughs> I shit you not, like, I was looking at the facts on it. So it's talking about this place called the Kalasa Temple, K-A-I-L-A-S-A. It's in India. It's named after the mountain range in the Himalayas. It is this like enormous temple carved out of a single piece of rock. And I looked Spell at that it. K-A-I-L-A-S-A temple. But it's not only just the temple, it's also like pillars next to it. And then there's like a flattened walkway that was literally carved from top down out of a solid piece of rock. And I looked at that and I was just like, how the, like, the fuck does that even happen? And then you said Petra and my, my experience before looking into this, I had seen images of Petra, uh-huh. but Petra's big claim to fame. If I'm going to, are you looking at it? It was completed in the eighth century CE. Uh, so it was created in the eight hundreds. Yeah. Or completed. Holy shit. So yeah, uh, well, it says 1,200 years. Yeah, 1,200 years ago. Oh, BC. Yeah, that's right. So this was Prior this to. was before that. And so kind of, I think a lot of people's... Um, this was after. That was 8th century BC. This was like 3rd, 4th century. Oh, you said CE. Yeah, I, very dumb. I don't know why I said that. Okay. Um, okay. So... No, I was CE. I, I don't understand this. We just needed to stick to BC and AD. So which one is CE? I think CE is after. Oh, God damn Zero. It. Just put AD compared. We're going to teach you something about BC. I think we've done this before. We're going to learn something about BC. So AD versus CE. Let's see what the difference. Oh, common area is the secular equivalent of AD. So CE, you said it was CE, right? Yeah. And this was... BC. Was this 312, right? Around 312 BC? 
So this is older. You were right. Yes, this is older, which means that that may have somehow, at some roundabout way, been an inspiration for that happening. Because, like, if you, if you didn't had never saw anything that was carved out of a piece of solid rock, would you just then look at a piece of rock somewhere else and be like, I think we can just carve this gigantic temple just out of this one thing. Like the equivalent of that is like, you ever see the YouTube videos of someone carving like an animal with like a chainsaw out of a log yeah, and then right. they get down there with like a chisel and then like the fucking lathe and the scrapers and stuff. And just the details and create incredible. Now think of fucking doing that with just a giant, not even like, I'm not saying a rock is in like a rock you can hold in your hand or carry. Sandstone. Or like it's sandstone, but obviously sandstone is incredibly resilient and tough because this shit still is very, very like well-preserved. Not like as well-preserved as it could be, but like you can see amazing detail. Well, you saw how they made that happen, right? Well, yeah. They, but they recessed it in. I know. In order to protect it from everything. It, exactly. But what I'm getting at is like the scope of it. Of being able to like, this is why I text you the advanced civilization thing. To be able to like see the rock and then plan it out. And then when we discuss how the method of how they're doing it, because it's not scaffolding or anything like that. Maybe not. I don't think it was. It, it, I'll listen to your argument for it when we get to that point. But the, the advancement and like the precision and craftsmanship of this it, it's fucking incredible. And like the, the symmetry of everything being like in the right place and it looks exactly, um, but kind of getting back. I know we're taking a while to get into this, lead but in. <laughs> it's long lead in. It, yeah. But a lot of people's first introduction or you've probably seen Petra if you're listening to this. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones in the last crusade when they're at the end and after Indy almost falls off the cliff in the tank and all that kind of stuff, they're looking for the Canyon of the Crescent Moon because that's supposed to be the legendary resting place of the Holy Grail. And they're riding horses through the canyon and all of a sudden you come upon this building literally built in and set back into the rock and that's the holding place for the Holy Grail. I, I had no idea that was a real fucking place watching that as a kid or anything. Like, I thought that that was a set that they... I mean, you've seen some fucking movie sets, but like... Yeah, but not back then. Like that. I know, but what I'm getting at is the reason I thought it was a set is because of how, like, kind of astounding. Like, really, you're looking at this thing, and it's just... It's the craziest thing. It's a... the It looks like the front of a Roman building built in and carved in one single piece out of the cliff wall. And it stands, what, like 30... What they say like 30 meters high? It's like 90. It might be more than that. Yeah, I think it was 120 high and 70 wide. And that's, and that's like, it. it's not really the resting place of the Holy Grail. Spoiler alert. It's got well, like three we rooms don't inside know. of it. It had three rooms inside of it that they're, and I'm sure they've done like penetrating radar to discover if there's additional rooms. It was a great place in the movie to keep the Holy Grail. I, no offense to our Italian listeners, you got to remember the Romans came in afterwards. And they usually oh, cleaned true. up a lot of that stuff. So if the Holy Grail was sitting in there... Well, in the movie, the Holy Grail is like back behind a whole bunch of like blades and challenges yeah. and like a <laughs> abyss and all that kind of I think shit. It, I don't think they had that set up. They were advanced, but they weren't like blade swinging advanced. So, and did you... Uh, did we actually even say... We did say it was Petra, right?
said that it was Petra. That's what we're alluding to. But I just the people, the, the Nabataeans, the people that inhabited and built Petra, and just the Nabataeans, yeah, just ran shit in this section of desert that was pretty much like the the hub, I would say, of trade and commerce between like the east and the west and the north and the south. It was uh, an intersection of the Silk Road from coming from like China and everything like that that came through India. And what was the other one? It was the Spice. What did they consider it? The Spice Road? Yeah. Frankincense and myrrh were very, very big. Fucking frankincense. It, I, you know, whenever you hear the gifts that the wise men brought, what was it? Gold, frankincense, frankincense and, and myrrh. myrrh. Yeah. The guy, you always assumed it was just like, it's the guy with the gold is trying to show everybody up. But after discovering apparently frankincense and myrrh, were like insanely sought after. And it makes sense because everyone probably fucking kind of stank and people's houses stank. And so like burning frankincense and myrrh to, you know, create essentially your house like it would be like a sign of sophistication and class and wealth and everything. So, I mean, in the same way that gold was. Well, we can get into detail about what was so big about it a little bit later on, but frankincense and myrrh were always like two of the most given, um, gifts, gifts, well, gifts to the gods. So every altar in every religious place before Christianity took over Mm -hmm. paganism, where you would offer, I guess it's not paganism because other people do, but you would offer gifts to the gods at their altars. And so these altars would have frankincense and myrrh burning at them all the time. How many times do you see, you don't see this essentially in like documentaries because of course they're no longer using them. But even nowadays, if you go into like a church or a temple, how often do you see the wafting of vapors and stuff like that that are from like burning incense and things like that? Don't the Catholic, what's the hangy thing that the Catholics use that it's full of? But what I'm saying is that that's always been a big thing. And I know we're focusing a lot on frankincense and myrrh and like, you know, the Silk Road and all that kind of stuff. But the place where these two roads came together, that would be essentially a stopping point for trade throughout the world where stuff was going to and from like the Roman Empire, also from like Alexandria and Egypt. It was the place where it was were Petra and Jordan looking at a map, it's almost this weird point where like, it's this narrow crossing between the Dead Sea and the... What's Red the, Sea? The Red Sea and the Dead Sea, isn't it? I think so. Because like an inlet of the Dead Sea comes in, the Red Sea's right there, and so it's this like land bridge that then crosses and allows you to basically either split to kind of the upper right and head toward um, what would be at that point like Greece, Rome, Italy, that area, or you could go to the left and that's where the connection to get to actual Africa was. So it was this huge stopping point for all of these travelers. They were either trying to get into Africa to go to like Egypt and Alexandria or to go into Europe or Italy and everything. Uh, And it's, if you're thinking about it, the easiest way for me to think about it is like one of those pictures of a compass where it's like got the four points Mm -hmm. for north, south, east, and west. Mm -hmm. And then there's like that intersection where they come to. To me, that's exactly what Petra was. Because like you say, the south, you're going into Africa, Egypt, Alexandria. Mm-hmm. The, or the west, you're coming from Saudi Arabia, um, Oman, I think is over there. 
And then coming from the east, you have the Far East, you have China, mm-hmm. you have India, essentially well, right India there. India was coming more down from like the south. That's yeah. where this. That's why where the Spice Road came up. All that stuff they're saying was from like India. The Silk Road came, I think, more east to west across that. But then that's where they met up. I, and so you're basically like built for that cradle of or for the, all those civilizations mm-hmm. in that whole area. You're like right in the middle of that compass. Yeah. So anybody that's going to go through there is going to have to pass through this great big desert that nobody else likes to inhabit because it's really uninhabitable and there's no water there. It's so fucking hostile looking. Yeah. It's not just it's not just like desert that you would think of like Sahara Desert or anything like that where it's like the sand and everything. It's like this just desolate like sparsely rocky area that would have like sandstone mountains and everything and geologically the reason that it was kind of able to exist and they think part of the reason they chose that was because the the bulk of it is essentially due to the strategic position of being the trade route um the other reason that they i think believed to start going like carving stuff into the rocks and like kind of establishing everything that way was because the like the sandstone was so beautiful and it's this did you read about like how that actually occurred and why that was just kind of specific to that area in jordan so it was on the two fault lines. So yeah. it's on two faults. So when those faults are coming together, what it did is sandstone of that color and of that design is like deep earth sandstone. So for that to come to the surface, it was millions of years of geological action where two plates were pushing together and all that sandstone basically like squeezing a tube of toothpaste from the bottom up. Petra, uh, that entire area around Petra and Jordan is like the top of a toothpaste tube. As these plates are pushing together, think of it as your fingers are pushing up. It's pushing all of this sandstone up. The stuff on top is like low-grade sandstone. It's not as compressed. And that's the whole point. Sandstone is sand that gets super compressed and basically gets fused into rock. Well, the more pressure on it, the harder it becomes and then what minerals it's made Mm -hmm. up of. So as it was pushing up over, you know, millions and thousands, whatever years, it would expose the first layer of sandstone. And that's the looser, less quality sandstone. It had more of like a gray color and kind of that actual sandy color. Mm -hmm. As the weather and time and everything wore that away and it kept pushing up, that's where you all of a sudden had this instance of this like beautiful, like vibrant red orange designed sandstone pushing up. And that's kind of where it comes in is... That other like trash stone, sandstone has been washed away. It's been turned into sand again. Exactly. And now you have this very unique like geological feature and color, but it's still insanely inhospitable. No, you know, vegetation hardly grows there. Water in the area was 15 centimeters a year. Which... uh it doesn't sound like a lot, but for there, like this is a desolate desert. There's it is, no... but like, how would you factor if you said 15 centimeters a year, you're like, okay, that's fine for a desert, but how do you establish, uh, essentially like a populace there? How do you establish a civilization there? You gotta well, be pretty fucking smart. Well, you have to be smart, but you also have to realize the power of sandstone because the power of sandstone, when it gets wet and it retains or it like water pools up on it. It then sucks its way through the sandstone and has to go somewhere. Eventually, it's going to end up underground in an under underground what just are they like reservoirs. A reservoir. Reservoirs. And uh, that, to me, uh, I think personally, the Nebateans were out there because they didn't want to be ruled. 
And mm-hmm. I think they wanted to just live their own life and do their own thing. And it kind of becomes more evident and obvious kind of later on with the way that they sort of looked at like women and slavery and different things like that. But they were out there because they just wanted to kind of be left alone. Yeah. And the fact that they were nomadic and moved around all the different times that they did, they were essentially looking for water. They were looking for weeds to feed their They had developed essentially a nomadic system for survival in this area. But up to this point, it was exactly that. They were kind of traveling around to areas that were a little bit more hospitable for them to live in. And... (laughs) In, in the best way possible, the Nabataeans remind me of the Beverly Hillbillies. A little bit. They somehow, you know, as nomads and everything, that's when they're living essentially wherever they first lived. Was it like Louisiana? I can't remember where the Beverly Hillbillies are from. But they strike oil. They get rich. When they get rich, they move on up and they essentially decide to move to the big city. Well, instead of moving to the big city the Nabataeans decide to essentially use all of this insane, like newfound wealth to basically establish what I can only really describe as like a super ancient society. (laughs) Not only that, I'm trying to think of like, what's a, every, every city has it where it's like the super upscale version of that. It would be like the Hollywood Hills. It would be like Tahoe, like places um, in Italy, like Lake Como, where it's just like this concentration of wealth where these people have decided, hey, we're going to isolate ourselves, but we're going to fucking live large and live like really fancy. And the way that they went about not only picking the spot, but then also like geologically engineering the area around them to make this area like hospitable and not only that, but like luxurious and thriving just the like the advancement in that alone like is kind of like staggering when you think of an ancient you know civilization it is until you break it down into like primal like basic things mm-hmm. because what's the easiest way not to get attacked to have some type of defensive fortifications yeah and they also will talk about their water source and everything but it was very close so you're basically <sighs> looking at saying hey we have to settle down because business is just too good Why don't we choose this little two-mile stretch between these massive sandstone walls? We only have to defend the front. We only have to defend the back. It's a natural defense on both sides. Mm -hmm. But we aren't going to be trying to take over other lands or anything like that. So people aren't going to be trying to fuck with us. Well, the other thing, too, is, okay, so you have this city and you don't want to be fucked with or anything like that. How do you keep this thing hidden? Well, you make the main entrance of it this, like narrow passageway <laughs> yeah. through these like they said it was how tall were them they said 90 meet no the the walls are like 30 meters and a meter is almost three feet right a little bit more so basically these 90 foot tall this 90 foot tall ravine where it's only like what like 10 to 15 feet wide in some areas where you have to wind through this canyon and then the canyon opens you out into this city uh, and still two miles in either, or two miles wide so a mile in either direction, if you're standing in the middle, that's not a real big area. No. Especially when you have towering walls that are hundreds of feet tall on either side of it. Mm-hmm. So that has to feel like a very enclosed and safe space. Oh, yeah, definitely. When you only have to, from invaders and everything like that, you literally just have to jam up that, what do they, <laughs> uh, what do they call the canyon, the Seek? Yeah, it was the Seek. Yeah, the Seek. 
And you even had a high ground that you established. You had you had watchtowers on the mountains surrounding. You would have guard towers that were able to have an entire view, three hundred and sixty of the landscape. You heard how those came about? I once we start talking yeah, about it, we'll, it might. we'll get to it. But basically, yeah, just to to kind of crack the the seal on the facts. Um, excuse me. The Nabataeans were an ancient people. Um, they were Arab in descent. I'm going to play the dumb white guy card. I don't exactly know what Arab is. Arabia, from Arabia. But how big is Arabia? Uh, at this point, I think it was pretty huge. And it takes up like multiple countries, like Jordan, Gaza. Yeah, it would be in that area. I think, well, I think it Israel. also took up, I think Arabia also used to be portions of like Iraq, Iran, maybe a part of India. It, it was it was Arabia was a lot of like the Middle East wasn't it and then down into part maybe Africa a little bit I maybe we'll I, figure that up when we yeah. talk about Arabia but they were nomadic people they had herds of they had a lot of camels later on which makes total sense when you Almost think about exclusively. their their atmosphere but they were just basically subside on traveling around with these animals. Uh, when they got hungry, they would slaughter an animal, mm-hmm. and they were basically like raising their own food, but also passing their time and kind of you like centering their life around raising what they're going to eat mm-hmm. in order to. Be it's a nomadic. To... It's a nomadic society. Yeah, I... they, they're taking with them, and think of also like you know, with the exception of like the Native American with the buffalo. I think they were able to follow the buffalo, whereas this was more nomadic in the sense of they would take everything with them. They wouldn't essentially follow. Maybe they followed something. I'm, I'm actually not completely sure on that, but I would imagine they took everything with them that they needed, including any livestock, food and stuff like that. Temporary shelter, anything like that is all a part of the train. It, 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 sorry. It was so inhospitable that they were able to figure out a system of being able to live in. These weren't like you weren't going 20 miles one direction, 20 miles the other direction. You were going hundreds of miles. Oh, you were covering a vast yeah. expanse of land. So you really start to get the idea of knowing how to navigate this just big, dry, barren area that mm-hmm. nobody else can get through. And ultimately, it was that lifestyle that led to their success. So, and and you may have caught some information on exactly how they became wealthy. So it's uh, at a certain point, the Nabataeans... <laughs> decide that there's this area in Jordan um, that's right on the spot, kind of between the stretch line, like we said, between the Dead Sea and the... God, why can't I remember the other one? It's I know you had it written down. Uh, the Euphrates and the Red Sea. Okay, the Euphrates and the Red Sea. And Doesn't I don't know what... the Euphrates go into Egypt? Yeah, but it wasn't the Euphrates. I'm pretty sure it was. Was it? I have a picture. Hang on. It, it it was a, a very large area, and to pick Petra in Jordan, uh, I think that there were some reasons. Uh, they called it Rakmu, I believe, or Rakmu. So it's the Red Sea. Yeah. And that's the one that, like, goes between India and Africa. It was a branch that came up off of the Red Sea into Jordan, and then on the other side, that was the Dead Sea. So the Red Sea and the Dead Sea. The, there we go. Easy to remember now. So about at a halfway point between the Red Sea and the Dead Sea in Jordan, I mean, do you do you just get a, a raise of hands as this nomadic tribe when you get to this point and you say, 
hey, we're tired of traveling around. I think we need to go and try to plant some roots where it doesn't look like you can fucking plant any roots. Um, or is it something where as a nomadic tribe or, you know, a nomadic society that you start to kind of get a feel during your travels? Because during your travels, you're constantly probably interacting with people traveling along the Silk Road and the Spice Road. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe you start to gather kind of an idea of saying, well, they all meet up here. And maybe when they met up there, maybe there was a, a marketers, like a small village where trade was going on between these two. And then before they, you know, went their separate ways to, to go back home. And the Nabataeans were like, you know, we noticed that these people, they're not built for this. They're constantly moving. They can't establish a permanent settlement. There's got to be some money to be made here if we were to establish some type of like city or civilization here where all of this trade has to then flow through us. And not only that, we're getting like all the incoming stuff from like India and China. We could like get first crack and first dibs on that before it gets to Alexandria or Rome or Greece or anything. I don't know how you would acquire wealth like that other than I'm thinking in like a benevolent way, just basically making a, a, a settlement or something where travelers could have security, rest, things like that. And it may have started like that. And then you know how they got yeah. their money. Okay, please do tell because I was just going to fucking <laughs> sit here and, and try to rack my brain for it. So you were on the right path. They were running into travelers that were trying to make the expanse to get to these bigger towns, areas, cities to mm -hmm. sell their goods and to sell their wares. And boat travel was a little bit tougher back then because you just had to go through some inhospitable areas and there were just parts that you had to dry dock through to carry your shit in. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you're going to try to get to Alexandria from India or China via boat, you got to go all the way around the mm -hmm. South, South Africa. So even, even then to get to not only just Alexandria, to get into the Mediterranean, to get to Greece and Rome and everything. So ships weren't like easy to come by. No. If you weren't like a Navy or had like merchant backing and everything, you were fucking donkey in a wagon or horse and camel in a wagon or whatever. I, and that was where they saw that the area that they inhabited and all that land that they had traveled on as nomadic people mm -hmm. would really start to come in handy because when they would run into these travelers and say, hey, where are you going? They'd be like, well, we got to go through here. We don't really know how to navigate this. And in the beginning, they're like, oh, you don't know how to get through? All right, we're going to jack your shit. So they were robbing people that they were finding along the route. So it started out as burglary and then moved into tourism. Uh, yeah. And it was almost like there was a, an emotional shift is to like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't be killing these people and stealing their stuff. And like, we know this area better than anybody. These people are having a tough time getting through this desert. We already have these highways to know where to go, to mm -hmm. go to these cities. Why don't we just start taking them on through and getting them to where they need to go is like a Sherpa basically. Uh, and, and charging them, essentially, for that, charging them a tax or something like that. Yeah, and they would charge up. Eventually, they got to the point to where they were charging up to 25%. And and this makes sense when you go from essentially like we're a society that's probably like robbing these people. Because what are they going to do at that point? That's not going to gain them essentially wealth or anything like that. What that's going to do is that's going to get them stuff. And then what are they going to do with that stuff? They're not. They're not at this point merchants or anything well and anything that they steal they also have to carry to the next place exactly so and chances are if you do that and you're stealing that stuff 
is are those people going to keep coming along into your area? If if stuff's not getting through, people are going to d- develop other safer travel paths. So there wasn't though. It was just going through there. No, no, it was. But I'm saying that it's it. One of two things is going to happen. One, another route is going to be established, or two, Greece, Rome, any of the surrounding other empires around that whole area or where the stuff is coming from. Guess what's going to happen? The next wagon train or you know shipment along the Silk Road, it's going to come with a fucking battalion of soldiers attached and they're going to wipe out anyone who's trying to stop it. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You don't have a civilization where you could just, like you said, switch, kind of switch gears and say, why don't we show you the best way around here? You pay us for the safe passage to get you and your goods through. And that allows us to then keep a consistent flow of income, repeat business of people coming through all the time. You're building relationships Mm -hmm. instead of just people helping knocking them out. And that was really how they built their wealth. And that's kind of how Petra came to be because they knew of an area and um, we already kind of explained the sandstone in the area was always going to be just like a big, basically Brita filter for all the rainwater and Mm -hmm. everything. It would store in these underground reservoirs. And there was actually an underground spring that was known as Musasa Spring. And it's actually they somehow tied it to this part of the Bible where Moses is wandering through the desert and he slams his staff against a rock and all the water starts coming out of the rocks. So they think somehow, I don't know how that this Musasa spring is what Moses was talking about when he found the well in the desert, but it was about five miles away from where we're talking about in Petra. And so they had a, very large water source that could sustain a population. They saw between in the seek between the two very large kind of mountains on either side that they would have protection to be able to come in there. And I'm assuming too, it just came to me. You would think that that would almost be the coolest place to be because you would be getting shade from one side or the other for most of the time. I, I think that that spot, I think there are a lot of reasons why they decide on that spot. Because here's the thing, too, like you said, it the best way to describe it, so you walk through this canyon that's like a, a kilometer long. You have to go through this canyon. So first of all, you have to discover this area by going through this canyon. This is at a time when any type of air viewing Flow, yeah. is completely non-existent. So you never had to worry about someone discovering you from above really unless they were on top of the mountains everything had to be actually discovered so if you're passing along a route and you just look like you see a collection of hills part of you's not there's nothing in your head that's just gonna be like it's hot as fuck out here there's no water no one's gonna develop a place around here and so i think for the Nabataeans to essentially thrive and be able to continue this business of kind of being a merchant hub they chose this spot, and I think we described a little bit earlier. So you go through this like one kilometer mile long canyon. It then puts you out into this area that's like you said, a mile by two miles. Uh, it's two miles wide. Two miles wide. And on each side are these sheer cliffs of sandstone. And they almost encompass this valley. And you're just looking at this and you're like, the only way these guys can get in to get us, and the only way we can get in here if someone were to discover us, is this right here. All we got to do is make sure we have a couple checkpoints or have some security. And we've got this insanely clued, you know, secluded, like private place that we could establish almost like a minor empire. 
and we could still be handling our business with our settlement out near the you know the intersection of the Silk Road because of yeah. course this isn't where they met it was a, a distance away but the other thing too is they're like okay so it's naturally fortified it's very hard to find for anybody that doesn't know where it is and they found that during the rains you know like you're saying this is sandstone so it's porous to a degree when it gets wet enough it's going to absorb some of the water and deposit it in these underground reservoirs all the other water you would get these flash floods of all the water coming off of these cliffs and mountains and it would all be funneled to certain spots and one of these spots just so happened to be this location for the city of petra and part of the design of it before they started you know being able to establish a society because you have to have you have to have your basic survivable needs met you have to have access to water you have to be able to have access to food and you have to be able to have access to shelter so they developed a system and you can see so many examples of it if you watch documentary if anyone has been to petra or walked through the seek on one side of the seek is like built into the rock next to it is almost like a trench mm-hmm. that runs the entire way. And within this trench, there's pieces of like clay piping in order for them to route this water. But then all around the city of Petra on these cliff sides, you basically had created natural aqueducts that were developed by the Nabataeans that fed water into these really ingenious, like even built reservoirs where they would fill up a big pool of water and it would have a hole a little bit higher up on it to a lower tank. Well, it, the water would rest in here as it was filling, and it would drop all the sediment down to the bottom. It was almost like a natural filter. Then once it got up to a certain level, that water at the top that didn't have the sediment would then spill into another tank. Same process would happen there. Whatever impurities were in there would then go ahead and settle down to the bottom of that one, and they would then route that water through a system of piping into these cisterns down in the city, and that would be where, like, the citizens would be able to have water year-round. It didn't matter if there was a rainy season or anything like that. Like, they would be able to store water to use for irrigation, their, the people living there, all year. And the way that they were, they were advanced enough, too, that they said, you know, there, there are pieces of the piping that they can see. So they can see the diameter. They know essentially about, like, um, hydrodynamics. The flow of this water and the size of these pipes that they used allows these pipes to become pressurized, to have a flow of water and pressure going through them, that they could even route the water up inclines. Not extreme inclines, like shooting it up no. the cliff face, but if you got to a position where you're like, we need to get this water up 10 feet, fine, just stretch a, some of this piping up, and the natural flow of water would take this up. So you're literally developing a system of plumbing. Oh, I, just everything that they did uh, in talking about like you were talking about, sort of the filtration systems mm-hmm. to get it going. They were also very smart in the way that they knew that sandstone would just basically suck up all the water. So in these underground reservoirs that they would build, they would line them with something called stucco, which is like a clay mixture. That you It's would, the same type of, it's not the same stucco that's on houses and stuff like that, but I think that's where, where it's, that comes from. That's where it comes from. Yeah. It's basically a waterproofing method yeah. of putting like, that's why when you see like old, um, do you ever see the videos sometimes of the guys making like the pools and stuff out in the jungle? No. Okay. I know that sounds, I know it sounds weird and everything, but you like Korean street food videos. So yeah, Um, I I would, that wasn't a place of judgment. (laughs) These guys will go out in the middle of the jungle with literally just like a spade and they're, they're locals in the jungle and they'll record themselves time-lapse over the course of days, 
digging these pools, routing water from like a creek and everything, and they'll always take wet clay and mud and they'll line the inside of it to stop absorption. So they knew enough about losing water, like you said, that they were lining these reservoirs and waterproofing them to make sure no water was lost. Yeah, they were doing the same thing, essentially making terracotta pipes to be able to run underground (laughs) so they would have something that was more solid than just the pathway. Have you ever seen the movie Dune? No. Okay. So... Basically, one of the main cultures in Dune, on the central planet of Dune, it's called Dune because it's a desert planet. There Correct. are these people that basically have survived on this desert planet for you know however long. They're they're the na- they're the natives of the planet, and they Dune is the, the opposite of Waterworld. It's almost yeah, pretty much, except it's in space. Um, <laughs> of course, but they've developed essential essentially like a worship of water because it's so scarce and so precious reading about these people is like that, that makes total sense like that. Like water is your most natural, you know, your most crucial resource for survival. You would be so ingenious about how you would save water and collect water and use water and, you know, prevent the loss of water that just some of the stuff, you know, that we're going to talk about that they came up with and what, that kind of like engineering allowed them to do and allowed them to like flourish. It's, it's crazy when you think that just a couple hundred years before the, you know, it really gets going in Petra that these people were just literally right around the desert on camels and, and everything. Yeah. I, I think Petra had to be built twice and I think it had to be built twice because of just simply where it was built. In that seek that they were in, mm-hmm. the way that that happened wasn't like an earthquake or anything like that. It was hundreds of thousands of years of all that rainwater flowing down that it was area. The, floods, it, the same way a canyon is yeah. made here. So I would contend that they started building Petra and then the rainy season happened and it started flooding, and they're like, oh, fuck, what are we doing here? This is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And then after that first one, they actually developed, I think it was a system of three dams up on the other side of Petra, Mm -hmm. away from the entrance, to hold in the water that would come down from the rainy season. So not only building dams, but then also, like we were just talking about, stuccoing the sides to be able to hold it off, and that's where they would divert water from to go through their water system. I think it's kind of a combination of the two. I think these people were very intelligent, obviously, but I think what they were doing is as soon as they established that they needed to have some type of presence on that trade hub, that they began looking around for the best site for a city. And I think one of the things that they focus solely on is where is water available? And I think they let that almost dictate where this was going to be. I, I think that the natural formation of where the water was able to go in Petra in this like, um, Canyon, I think that was the primary factor that allowed them to do that. They're like, this is, they're like waters here and they're like, and it's naturally fortified and it's hard to find. They're like, this is fucking perfect. We can fix the water situation from, I think that was probably the first thing they did. I, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they tried to establish maybe, you know, where, where they essentially get the city and build the city and all the structures. I would imagine that initially they just brought everybody in and everyone was setting up temporary tents and all that kind of stuff. Boom. First flash flood comes in for the rainy season or something, floods out the area, and they look around and they're like, 
okay, this is too much water. We need to figure out a way. We're going to need this later. We don't need it soaking through our tents. So let's work for a way that we can store this all around us and make it accessible. And then we can go ahead and go about building a permanent, you know, settlement. Well, and some of their brilliance, I was telling you about their farming methods and how they would grow You didn't go into detail. I was waiting for you to explain this because that's something I didn't get to see. I saw how they were able to create gardens, Uh like not Babylon style, but I mean... They were pretty fucking close. No, no, no. They were very, like, um, elaborate yeah. and everything. I'm not talking about, like, a giant pyramid covered, like, the hanging no. garden type stuff. What I'm saying, though, is, you know, there was obviously, and we'll get into this, an insane amount of Roman and Greek influence mm-hmm. within the structures and the way they built things. So much, in fact, that you wonder, like, this does not seem like the the knowledge that a nomadic tribe would have to just look something and be like columns and like figures and stuff like that. And did you know why that's the case? Yeah. It's, I mean, they're traveling and have travelers from all these other places that are going through. So they're sending guides and shit back and forth. I'm sure they went and visited all these cities. I'm sure that they did. I'm sure they had people looking at all this. They had to have had people going into these areas because what they did, they had so much wealth when they started building this city they went to like Alexandria, they went to places in Greece, and they hired people that were builders and designers and architects to actually come in and I, build I these see things. It, it, it makes total sense when you, like you say, it It has a little bit of spice of everything. Like yeah. It's like they took the best things that were architecturally... The biggest influences they said were Egyptian, yeah, because you have obelisks uh-huh. and things like that, and then Roman and, or Greek, because you have so many of the... Greek columns and the, I don't know what you would call them, the cornices for, I architectural terms are not my strong suit, obviously, but if you're listening to this right now, you have your phone in front of you, look up Petra and you'll see instantly it looks like Rome made out of red sandstone or Yeah, it's sandstone. red Rome. Yeah, basically. it's red, red Rome, red Rome. <laughs> uh, the way that they would form is they they didn't have any agriculture really because they were nomadic and they were moving. They probably could grow a few things, but not a lot. But what they would do in these big fields, and they weren't fields like you would traditionally think. It would be like in the side of a mountain, like a terrace. Mm-hmm. But the way that they would do it would be they would start Machu, or Machu Picchu style. Yeah, they would start digging these kind of like big cone shapes out of the side of the sandstone, mm-hmm. and then right at the base of it is where they would plant their seed and plant their trees. That's so right. as the rain would hit, it would funnel everything down into that one area, and that's how they would grow them. So they would have to put them, they'd have to space them, you know, like six feet apart. They said it required a ton of space to be able to grow food, and they're like, but lucky enough, do you know what Petra had a lot of? Everything space, yeah, space. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's just ingenious. You're basically just taking a tree and being like, I'm going to put you at the bottom of a sinkhole to where every bit of water that travels around you is getting focused right to your roots Mm -hmm. Uh, it just the whole idea behind it just seems so brilliant that it was they basically had to invent a lot of this shit because nobody else had to put up with the place that they inhabited Mm -hmm. so everything was kind of like a design or a creation out of necessity and they did it really really well because i want to say right around the peak of petra they had sustained it was like a little less than thirty thousand people Mm mm-hmm in a two-mile-wide expanse. It just, yes. It's incredible the size of this place. And it was 
and here's the thing too, is there wasn't a lot of room. I'm sure you had, you know, whenever you think of like the great ancient cities that are still standing, the stuff that you see that is still standing is the stuff that's meant to stand, try to stand the test of time. It's the stuff that's made out of, you know, stone and all that kind. I'm sure like throughout Petra and outside of like the walls and at the front of the canyon, there were probably a lot of like pop-up villages, tents, things like that. Shanty towns. Exactly. And there was a ton of that for some of the population to live in, but most of it was centralized within this one by two mile, you know, or two mile wide canyon. And so, you know, you're, you're the architects of Petra and you're looking at this and you're saying, well... You know, we could just build everything from the ground up and all that kind of stuff. Or we could essentially use this in this canyon and these cliffs and everything like that. And we can start essentially building these uh, amazing structures right into the side of the mountain, out of the mountain itself. And when you look at like a, a picture of Petra from kind of back and from the air, and you're looking at this, you know, concave bowl and everything like that you just see these buildings built right into the facade and you know the entrances and the columns and all of them are just elaborately done and and the the workmanship and then you had uh did you see the amphitheater i didn't you said that there was one i didn't look it up it it only makes sense to put an amphitheater in something like that could you imagine i just thought about this too the echo of all the business and commerce and everything being in just that area would mm-hmm. be so loud all the time everywhere in the city. Yeah. Cause it would just be bouncing off the two sides of the mm-hmm. walls. Yeah. Thank God you didn't have any type of like any motorization or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Just essentially just the human caused noise would be enough. Yeah. So the amphitheater was essentially off to the side in the, in the Canyon. The seating area was like a half bowl carved directly into the rock three terraces with I don't know how many rows of actual like benches or bleachers, maybe like 10 or 12 to each one wrapping mm-hmm. around. They said there were seven staircases that allowed you to traverse. Um, there were tunnels that you could go through to get to like your seating and everything. 8,500 seat capacity. And then it looked down essentially onto the stage and then overlooking the back of the stage was the entire city of Petra. So you had like the perfect backdrop, the the perfect backdrop. And everything about this is just you. I I swear when I was first looking into this, I was trying to find some type of tie where the Nabataeans were led by or were essentially like the an offshoot of like the Romans or Greeks or Mm -hmm. something like that. Like at some point, if, you know, during Alexander's conquest, because that was before this, not too, not too long before this. But after Alexander died, you had the breaking up of, you know, Alexander's empire where you had Ptolemy and Seleucus and trying to remember the other guy's names that all split up and ruled a different part of Alexander's kingdom. Yeah. I was trying to find these ties to be like, one of these guys had to be the founder of the Nabataeans. The, the only way that he would have knowledge of all this and be able to know that that's what he wanted was essentially building a mini Egypt slash Rome in the middle of this desert canyon that's the only thing I could wrap my mind around. But then when I found the information, it's like, no, these motherfuckers just got so rich that they just went to these other cities and they're like, who built this? They're like, well, it was like Theseus. And they're like, I want to hire Theseus. Theseus is coming back to fucking Petra with us. And then they had people in Egypt and it's like, who worked on all this kind of stuff? And they're like, that was whatever the name would be there. I'm, we'll hire that guy. And they 
brought in these people and to build this, the I want to go here so bad. Yeah. And it's and it's just for the simple fact of like when you watch a video of someone walking through the seek, um, it's kind of comparable to most of people if you're living in the States, you would recognize it if someone is walking through in like Utah. Color, is it Utah or Colorado where you have the canyons where you can kind of walk through and everything? Where's that at? Is that S- South Utah? Yeah, Utah, like Red Rocks. Um, shit, I forgot what it's called. But yeah, it's yeah, same place where that guy had to cut off his arm after he got trapped <laughs> under the rock. That kind of shit. I forgot so, what that desert is, but it's also and uh, just you bring that up in talking about the amphitheater. You said that it sat eight thousand people, eight thousand five hundred. Red Rocks in Colorado seats ninety five hundred. So it only seats a thousand more people, and this was man-made. It is very similar. When you look at the layout of Red yeah. Rocks, it, it's super si- So here's the deal. You have a culture that is basically, and they built it that way for acoustics. That's why the theater was there. You have someone who's establishing, that's why, you know, when you look at a Roman theater, a Roman arena, they knew what they were doing. You know, circling around the arena, the way to go ahead and control the acoustics and everything like that. Um well, didn't Greeks create amphitheaters? Yeah, Greek theater, I assume, would be... I mean, they're not the first people to do play, but it may be the first one to establish, essentially, like a permanence to it. Well, and you would imagine that was probably where they saw it, and the Nebuteans were like, you have one, we want one. Yeah. What's I, this? And they're like, well, you hire people, and then they entertain you, and everyone gets to sit up there and watch. They're like, we need one of those. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is the way that they took from different cultures with the architecture and everything... And this may be completely off, but just judging by some of the other things that they did, it could have been like creature comforts for home for travelers. Like they see things that look familiar as they're on their trade routes to almost be like, this is a really great place to be. If if they're allowed. I, I, I wonder about kind of like the Nabataeans and, and Petra and what the accessibility would be for outsiders there. They they brought in it was a very multicultural place. Was like, it? Yeah, it, it wasn't just the Nabataean people. There were people from other countries, other big cities that were traveling through that would just stay. Okay. So you had obviously your time Nab- is up. You've been here two days. Now <laughs> now we're gonna throw a bag over your head and walk you back out the seek, spin you around five times, and then you're gonna take off. Yeah, they I feel like they were just very welcoming, and I think so much about just their culture and the way that they did things was very welcoming. They, what seemed to be like really respected women. Like one of the things that I enjoy looking up these old ancient, um, civilizations and these old, yeah, just, I guess the ancient ones too, or not the ancient ones too, but just the ancient ones. Mm-hmm. When you look at their coinage and you look at the way that they created their own money system, but they were vain enough to be like, this can't just be a piece of gold or this can't be a shekel. Mm -hmm. We need to strike the king's face onto every single one of these. The coinage from the Nabataeans actually had pictures of queens too. Hmm. So they they held women, I think, in higher regard enough to be able to put them on money. Huh? Like the Canadians or the British. Yeah, that's different. They they got tricked into putting that old wench on there. Oh, that's true. Is the new money going to have Charles in uh, his fat sausage know. fingers? I don't know if they're in the business of creating a new denomination if they need to. Well, just replace her. Or you think she's just well, evergreen? I don't, think that, I don't think that works like that. Yeah. I'm I, sure he submitted that idea. So I go on the money now, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, man, no. I guess I forgot our own history and realized that every piece of money that we have has uh-huh. been somebody that's been long, long dead. Okay, so hold the thought essentially on um, 
the support of women's suffrage oh, yeah. in regards to Nevitians because I got to do a bathroom break. All right. While we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod, and our Twitter is historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and back to our show. Where we were. All right, tell me, tell me about the women in Petra. Oh yeah, they, they were. Besides being put on the coinage, which is huge, uh, they were like mentioned on the tombs. When they were buried with their kings, uh, they held like high positions of power. Like instead of just all doctors being men, there were women that were doctors. They were allowed in the workforce to the higher degrees. I'm not positive if they were in the government. I mean, obviously there's a queen, but I'm not going to say that there were like states women. But <coughs> it seems like back then for that time period, oh, very progressive. Yeah, well, and they. There's stories, uh, it was one, that's the very tough part about um, the Nabataean people, was we have so few of their writings to really understand anything about them. Everything kind of has to be like a second-hand account mm-hmm. that we get from a, a philosopher. And, and there's not a ton. So that goes, that just lends to the fact that they did want to go and kind of keep to themselves. Mm-hmm. And like even kind of touching base on the whole progression of women thing. So part of that could have been just natural, you know, sociological progression. Other parts could have been uh, as a necessity. If you're wanting to keep your civilization, you know, if you're smart enough to do everything that they've done up to this point, you're smart enough to establish a place for the city where it can thrive in the middle of the desert. You can do all this routing of water and creating a system, gardens, buildings, carving these, you know, amazing wonders into the sides of these mountains you do have to also at that point have the, you know, the wherewithal to know, okay, if we get too big, we're not going to stay a secret. If we get too big, we're going to make ourselves vulnerable because we're going to have to spread out. We're going to have to be less defensible. I think part of, you know, the Nabataeans whole deal was that they knew that they could maybe only get, and this is me just fucking talking out my ass. But I think with a civilization like that, if you know that you have to remain a certain size, you can't get too big to maintain the way that you want to live as a society. I think you then can't be picky about utilizing your, your pool is smaller. So Mm -hmm. you have to be able to take advantage of everybody within that pool of people, regardless of their gender, you're basically more on a meritocracy of their skill set and their standing um, and what they can actually bring to the society itself. Well, and at that point as well, to just reinforce what you said, they weren't really big into slavery. Like they, they weren't, they did have a few sprinkled in, but their society wasn't built on having like people that were inside their houses that were slaves. There was a writer, I think he was from Greece. He said that he attended like a big party that they had. Mm -hmm. And he said that the servers weren't slaves. They were just lower members of society that were being paid to go in there and work the exact same way that we would do. They were, they're they're caterers. They're working for a catering. No, we just hired a catering company. And they even said that, um, the servers that were coming out and bringing food, if they were bringing them out in like a platter Mm. that even the King himself would ask if anybody around the table needed to be served as well. Oh yeah. He'd gone through, didn't he serve people himself? Yeah. the, The King was serving everybody from men to women to just anybody. 
So there wasn't like that hierarchical or hierarchy of like he's the king, he should never have to work for anybody. He was willing to do that. And in a culture like that, they're obviously going to, you know, I think be allies for other people. There were stories about the I think it was when the Maccabees escaped mm-hmm. from um I forgot who their captors were, who their persecutors were. I'm trying to remember the story that Ross tells when he's the Hanukkah armadillo. (laughs) And he's like, the Maccabees. And he tells some story about him. I can't remember who they escaped from. But uh, these Maccabees escaped and talked to the Nabataeans. Excuse me. The Nabataeans were like, yes, we want you guys to fight. We want you guys to overthrow your oppressors. Mm -hmm. They were telling them about other atrocities that were happening to Jewish folks and other Jewish towns based on their oppressors. Like they, they were in support of upheaval partially. I'm sure because if they were being attacked and being overruled and oppressed by these people, they might come for the Nebuchadnezzar too. And and just from like a geography standpoint, like Israel and Palestine are right bordered up next to Jordan. Very So that would explain essentially the proximity. And, And, just certain things like that. There's a story. I know that this one was a Greek guy. It was a, a letter that was written to one of the higher ups in Greece that said that they had lost two chariot drivers because as they were going through um, Petra, they were trading female child slaves and the chariot drivers. Yeah. So instead of the Nabataeans just letting them go through, they're like, eh into the road for you and threw them both in prison and kept them in prison and freed the, the female slaves that they were trying to do that. So they were very conscious. And I think it goes back to the point of they started out kind of their industry as helping people after they hurt people. Mm -hmm. Like they saw that there was a greater good in peace and in help than there was in oppressive rule. Here's kind of the, I'm going to skip ahead and then we, we can come back and everything. One of the reasons that I think, you know, this whole thing with the Nabataeans and Petra is so fascinating is that this isn't like a civilization that met its demise through like, I mean, there was some like conquering and things like that, but had that not happened, the fact that part of it was destroyed by earthquakes. Later on. It it was, but what I'm saying is this. If you're in an area that has gotten hit by a few different earthquakes over, I think it was, was it centuries or was it decades? There was a time frame when they got hit with a couple of them that were in a close time frame, but it wasn't like the span of a couple of years. No, because this was, we're talking about uh, CE mm-hmm. is when these earthquakes hit and this was still all BC. They were running back to like the third century BC. I know. So, Hundreds of years. Yeah. What I'm getting at, though, is if you're in a place where you establish, you know, your your civilization and then you get hit with an earthquake and it causes a lot of damage, you're like, well, that hasn't happened before. So you like rebuild and everything like that. You get everything back up and running. And then a little bit longer, you know, down the road, maybe a couple generations, another earthquake hits and it destroys everything again. And just, you know, you're not a huge populace. You're still at the peak. They were, you said, between twenty and 30,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but at a certain point, depending on what other factors are hitting you, hey, people know where we are. We're starting to get invaded. We got some undesirable people coming in here. We're having to be beholden to these other empires that say that they are conquered our state and everything. At some point, you just 
move on to someplace that where you don't have to deal with the bullshit. When it's a smaller, you know, group like this, I think it's easier to move on. It's what we saw in Babylon. Exactly. But what I'm kind of, why it's bittersweet is that like, had that not happened, what would this be like right now? Would it be like Dubai? Would it be like a super wealthy, like destination? Because just from a visiting standpoint, this is the most popular place in Jordan. Like this is on the seven new wonders of the world. It's a, uh, what are they? uh, Pesco historical site. Like it's a world protected heritage site. Oh yeah. So, I mean, this isn't like, and I know a lot of people are, if you clicked on this episode and you listened to all of our episodes, or if you just found this through a search, there's not a lot of stuff on Petra. No. As far as like podcasts or anything like that. And so I think that kind of, it, it gets lost in, and I think one of the reasons why there's not a lot of stuff on it is because there's not a lot of stuff left from it. We're left with a couple firsthand accounts. We're left with the ruins and the, um, you know, structures in Petra, but we're not left with a lot of firsthand, like written accounts and everything, or people that are ancestors that came from Petra because at some point they left Petra and abandoned it. So there's not someone to tie themselves back to being like, oh, I were, you know, I heard stories of Petra as a child or anything. Well, and it also, it's just time. I mean, well, yeah, but time, you can fight against time if there's people there. You know, there was a time between the abandonment of Petra to when it was actually refound by somebody. That was 1812. So there was an entire time when Petra may have only been inhabited by some other nomads, but no one that was going to, like, keep its splendor like it was. There wasn't an established population. Like in Rome. Yeah, the stuff in Rome has deteriorated, but... Rome itself, the city, has grown and built new things and all that kind of stuff. And you still have, you know, the Roman ruins and, like, all that kind of stuff there within that city. Who's to say that Petra couldn't essentially, had it stayed populated, had found itself in a similar situation when you had, you know, the historical district. You know when you go into a town and you go into the historical district and it's the oldest part of the city and Mm -hmm. everything? Like, imagine that. Like, you go into, like, modern-day Petra, and it's still preserved, and it's in this canyon, but then there's city built around it. Like, it just seems like there was, for as great as it was and everything, it's almost a shame that you don't get to see what it could have done. I I don't know how much it could have been, though. Because you still needed more resources for more people, and not to mention you only had so much space unless you're sprawling back out into the desert and into a dangerous area. Well, and there was also the fact that, you know, in contributing with natural disasters and everything, one thing that during the time that the Nabataeans were essentially prospering, advancements essentially in shipbuilding and sailing and everything were climbing along at a pace to where all of a sudden trade routes weren't over land. They were faster and less dangerous if they were done over water. And so it kind of shifted a lot of that centralized trade that was coming through Petra, through the silk and the spice road. A lot of that stuff was being done essentially by shipping. I don't know if that would have been an issue, though, because they had a port. Lukiakoma was their port that they had. I think it was on the Red Sea that they were receiving shipments over the ocean that they were getting into. I think if if they hadn't have been taken over and, I guess, sort of gentrified by the Romans, Mm -hmm. 
I think that they could have continued to do it, but Rome knew that the only way that they were going to be able to get stuff for mm-hmm. free is to annex. But what I mean is this. They would have still had access to the trade routes, but their big thing through was essentially almost a control of the trade routes, and you were only making money off that if there were people traveling to do trade. If that lessened, because um, you know travelers and merchants were deciding to ship their goods via boat, you didn't have that that funneling of the trade that came in there. That was the route that people had to take. They do have a port, but that means that someone has to then go into that port with the intention of trading in that area. So it, it to it, stop to get things fixed. I mean, it's yeah. They, they could have still had a business. It wouldn't have been the same thriving business. Mm-hmm. They're definitely their piece of the pie would have been much smaller than the whole yeah. pie that they had before. I still think that they could have survived on their own without Rome. I think had Rome not happened, I think they could have too. They still would have survived and thrived. They probably would have built more around the port. They would have figured out a way to expand their empire as far as even being an exporter themselves mm-hmm. of something. One of the weird things that I saw that they didn't have was olives. They had sesame, so they would make sesame oil, but they didn't have olives for olive oil or anything like that. You would think that olive trees could grow out there with, like, figs and the other stuff that they grew, right? I'm not a, or a, or a what do they call it, a tree expert. A, oh, God damn it, I know what that's Arborist? called. Arborist. So I don't know what the climate tolerance of a... It just seems odd that they would be able to grow like figs and that kind of thing, but not. I mean, from a climate, from like a you know um, longitude latitude, like along the same. What do you call that? Uh, Parallel? No, not parallel. Like if you're on the same latitude, is it latitude? Yeah. Okay, so if you're on the, it was a similar latitude essentially to like the Mediterranean. I just don't know essentially if it was more so like the climate from like soil, like soil, rainwater, all that stuff that allowed. That didn't allow the olive to be like an option. It just seemed odd because everywhere around there ran on olive oil. Like that that trade of olive oil was a yeah. worldwide deal too. Then, like I, you you see, like just being able to like walk through and walk to the entrance and walk through the canyon. You would walk and come around a corner in the canyon and just stare you right in the face, like almost at a T junction was that first building from, from Indiana Jones that I think that's kind of, isn't that like kind of the poster? That's like the yeah. spokes, spokes building for Petra. But it was built pretty, a, a decent amount of time after they had kicked off. Like it was by no means mm-hmm. the first thing that they had done. It was more of like a commissioned work of art at that point. Well, and, and it did serve a purpose too, because they, they think at this point that it was like the treasury, which part of me when I was looking at that, I was like, okay, so you're putting the treasury not... Mm-hmm secured inside the city where you would think that you would want to go and store your wealth. But it did make a lot of sense because if you have travelers coming in and out of Petra, if you're going into Petra, you would need to maybe deposit some money, pull out, like do something along those lines before you went into the city. And if you were traveling out of the city and needed to pay taxes or something like that, you would stop at that point too, before traveling on. So even from like a, like city planning standpoint, it seemed like they had the wherewithal to say like, well, this is a good spot for this because we'll be able to go ahead and hit travelers coming and going to make sure that they're paying, you know, whatever they need to, to enter the city or use the trade routes or whatnot. Do you think it was actually the treasury? It, it's, it's 
Fuck, man, I don't know. I'm just the going room on. layout doesn't make sense to me to be a treasury. Well, okay, so you go into it, and it's basically one decent sized room. It's not huge. And then branching off of that room are literally just three smaller rooms. One to the left, one to the right, one straight ahead of you. My brain, I'm looking at that and I'm like, so how would a treasury work back then? Were those like little vaults or little secured rooms that they stored stuff in? And there was a dude at a desk um, and he was the one checking. I I don't know how it would work. Um, I think what I mean, maybe instead of like treasury where they would actually keep all of it, maybe it was almost like a... um, Fuck, it could be like a concierge. You're getting ready to go into Petra. This is the first place. And they're like, passport, please. Maybe that was where they checked people out. You had to check in before you went into Petra. Because it's not like you could just pass that building if there were guards. It was right in the canyon. Like, you can walk past it. I feel like it was probably kind of what I saw was that it was... um a mausoleum for King Atreus the I heard that. I heard that too. It, to me, it makes sense just from the room layout and the fact of where it is in the city because I think a mausoleum for a regular person you would want sealed off. But I think for a king or royalty or anything like that, to build a mausoleum that people could come in and see and still worship you and give you gifts and offerings, I feel like that to me would make sense right at the beginning of a city where it is. Yeah, because one of the buildings, too, like that was built into the cliffside once you got into Petra, there were several of those that were either monasteries or actual like tombs mm-hmm. that were built into those rocks for, for wealthy people. Um, how they, I, I want to get into how they built this thing because when you're thinking of like Rome, when you think of like Egypt, you're building stuff out of like blocks or in, you know, in Rome you'd be maybe carving something large out of a single piece of like granite or limestone Mm -hmm. and then stacking that and building a building. And traditionally how they would do that, I'm not going to get into how they did the pyramids because that's going to have its own episode. And frankly, I don't fucking know. But Aliens make just as much sense. In Rome, what you would do is you would build basically like giant like dirt or earth mounds on each side of what you're doing and then you could get up to the top level to raise stones and put them in place and then they would basically just move all this earth out of the way and you would have a a temple or whatever they weren't able to do that in in petra so out of this cliff face and you can try to explain your theory on how they do this i'll go through mine what they did to build this is they basically created a staircase around like the back of the hill that would allow workers to actually get up and elevate a little bit like, and then they had a dug out like chamber Mm -hmm. and that would be where they kept all their tools for the day. So it was like fucking Fred Flintstone, like going to clock out. So you would leave all your tools there for the day. And then in the morning you came back and they were there. There was then a bridge built across it that they would go across and hike up to the top of this hill. They were going to carve in the cliffside below. They dug a trench along the side of the cliff face that they could then go down and then basically they had to determine, because it's on a sheer cliff that goes just straight up, they also had to factor in, okay, we can't start at the bottom because if we don't factor in right the depth that we have to go in, by the time we get to the top, we might not have rock to build because it'll have tilted in toward the mountain more. Does that make sense? So like, okay, so like, no one listening to this is going to be able to see my hand. So I basically have my hand and I'm kind of curving it at the top. If you started right at the the beginning of my hand and then went in a straight line up. See how that's not touching the rock anymore? Yeah, because it's, it, it, it's convex. So it, they it had to determine out. they couldn't go from the bottom because if they built, they would have to make sure they built in and then up to make sure it was still covered. 
the other thing too with building up is when they're, you're building up, you have to use wood scaffolding and wood planks and everything. You had to have a lot of that stuff, especially. And one of the things that was literally the most scarce or rare in that area of Jordan were actual trees. There were bushes and like scrub brush that you could grow in the desert, but growing trees that you could get enough lumber out of to actually create strong support structures, it, it just wasn't available. There's theories that maybe they could have gathered that type of stuff from other areas and shipped it in and had the money to do that. Yeah. But but the way that they've showed and explained and did reenactments of it, the way that they're digging out of the rock is they would start at the top and then they would actually carve everything that they needed in the rock. So it's almost like a reverse 3D printer, how a reverse 3D printer builds stuff up. Mm-hmm. Think of it if it started at the top and built stuff down. So they would carve all everything out of the rock and then once they got like a two foot section done all the way across they would then chunk out all the rock between them knock that out and then start carving in again and then after they got that perfect because you couldn't go back up so you had to make sure it was completely perfect you would then start building down again and remove more rock and the process they said i think it was the entire city to complete the city of petra through all this was like over 200 years but the treasury specifically took four years to complete. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely plausible. Okay, so what do you think? Uh, I think it's just like you explained. If you're going to go and get architects from Greece and Alexandria and everything like that who do use scaffolding and mm-hmm. you're going to bring them in to do it, why would you not bring all the materials that you need along an established trade route along with them so that they can do it just as simply as... They did back home. You okay. know what I mean? Okay. So I'll counter with this. There's another building in Petra that I think is like, it. I think it was established that it was a tomb. And it's not built within the city of Petra. I think they said it's half a mile up on like uh, overlooking the city or higher up on like one of the mountains. Yeah. It wasn't built out of a cliff face. It was built out of a solid piece of rock. The way they started is they started on the middle or like part, when they figured they had enough room between the edges of the rock and they just carved it going straight down, removing the stuff. And so they were basically, if you're standing on top of a rock and you look straight down, that's where they start carving it, and they just carved it out, moving down, like you would build into like a reverse 3D printer. Why couldn't they do the scaffolding? Well, what do you mean, why couldn't they do the scaffolding? Why couldn't they have used scaffolding to do that, too? So you think they just dug all the way... The, the reason that I don't believe they did scaffolding on this one is because if they were doing scaffolding, they wouldn't have dug like... 20 feet into the front of the rock to then they would have to remove 20 feet of rock and then do that. Well, they did that to protect it from wind and sand and everything else because they wanted it to stand the test of time. Mm -hmm. That's why it has a border around it to protect it. It, it would make sense to me to just run the scaffolding, have somebody on every single row. They're knocking out a piece. You move it in, knocking. Well, they explained how they could do it without the scaffolding too, when they were, because I understand like the scaffolding also supports when they built the actual structures that were within the Valley like within the canyon, those were like your more traditional, like Roman type building style with columns that were built out of like, you know, cylinder pillars, Mm -hmm. but chunks. And then you would stack one on top of the other that was created by like the outsides of the buildings were created by square blocks. And they explained, they're like, well, how do you explain how these were built? If you didn't have scaffolding to get to other levels, they, they had this when I first saw it, I was like, that doesn't fucking work. And then they explained how it works. You would take a hole and dig a hole in the ground and then take, and you'd have to have at least one giant wooden beam. 
like a circular beam. A pylon. Yeah. You would plant that in the hole. That has range of motion of just kind of moving around in a circle mm-hmm. and everything a little bit. But what you would do is you would then take two ropes and you would attach them to the top of the beam and then split them off at like an angle to where one was over to like the beam's left and the beam's right. And you would have a crank on each of these that would wind out and then either wind in or wind out rope. And you could literally, the range of motion that this thing has and the ability because it was on a crank system to be able to lift rocks and move them to various degrees and heights, it could almost like you could almost put it in the middle of a building and without moving this thing out of the ground, you could almost swivel around the entire and build a building completely around you. Cradle crane. Is it a cradle crane? Ooh, is that what they or, called it? No, it's just it's just a crane. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, uh, a crane that these people are manpowered crane that these people are using that requires very minimal like wood and everything. Like not the kind you would need for for scaffolding. I like to imagine that it was advanced enough that they carved it directly out of rock. I'd like, like to imagine down. that they were advanced enough to know that they had so much money that they could bring in whatever they could. It feels like that they were making somewhere, I don't even remember what the, the metric was mm-hmm. as far as how much money they were making a year, but it was like 55 million shillings or whatever it was a mm-hmm. year that they were making. They said the average take home a day for a worker or for a week for a worker was like seven. So it was like 2,000 of those a year that they were making. As a town, there were, or as a city, they were making fifty-five million dollars, a million the whatever equi- their the equivalent unit, of whatever that yeah, would be. fifty-five million units a year. If you have that kind of money, you're pretty much rule and can do whatever you want. That's true. They even, I, I'm sure that they were very um, creative mm-hmm. and could come up with that stuff, but it just feels like the easiest way to explain it is the fact that they use their money for it. Cause like you were talking about with the way that they built the aqueducts and everything else around, they had pleasure gardens there. They, yeah. they were able to route water to fountains in these gardens to be able they to They had grow. a public, a large public pool, yeah. like basically like a day spa that had these two, the, the pools were Olympic swimming pool size. Two of them, they sat next to each other in the middle of them was a giant mausoleum where you could just fucking chill out and do whatever. And then on the front side of the pool were a couple steps down into like this huge lush garden with like palm trees and all this kind of stuff. So I'm definitely not saying that they weren't creative enough to figure out something like that. It just feels like for something that was, it's not simple by any means, but it's just sort of basic and intricate that you would have more of an artist work on than like a, an actual architect. I guess you'd need an architect for it, but it's more of like, you would need someone to plan it out and everything. And then the artisan to actually do the work. You, you had people that could probably, you know, chisel the fuck out of stone and make a perfectly square block. But if they were like, well, how do we stack these guys? Like, I don't fucking know. I just make the blocks, man. And it's cool to see where they were able to locate like the quarries all around the city because they were mm-hmm. all up in the hills around it. So it would have made transportation of all these blocks all going like downhill to go ahead and funnel them toward the city. Makes a shitload of sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, pretty much the only buildings that still exist there, you can still see the footprint and ruins of like their city. It, it was basically what they considered like their town temple, but it was more of a, they said it was more of like a town hall. Had a big courtyard, a meeting yeah. place, giant columns on each side, these big covered areas. Um, that's all gone except for kind of like the stubs of the pillars, but you can still see the footprint. It was it was immaculate. And, and that's 
kind of the catch-22 of sandstone is it's very easy to use. It's very easy to carve out of, but it's not going to be weather-resistant. So it's not going to withstand the test That's true. Of time. Well, and also, when you're building something like that, earthquakes, man. Yeah. yeah and that's going to knock it down. So it's not yep. only man, man-made dangers, but it's also the earthquakes. There was a what they determined to be like the place of worship, which in within Petra, um, that is the most intact building. It's still got like three sides standing and you look at it and they explain it and they're like, this thing was built to withstand earthquakes. And they're like, you know, we know that. And they showed, and they would do like two or three layers of blocks. And then they would do a layer of wooden beams, like small, like probably the way they looked at it, it may have been like six inches tall. And they would do a layer of wooden beams and then put another layer of these stone or these huge, you know, stone blocks on it, and then do another. And they had three layers of wooden beams going up. And what would happen is because wood has enough of a flex to it that if that building started to shift from the base, uh-huh. if whatever that first set of wood beams going around in that first ring, it didn't absorb, it lessened it going up to the second level, and then that next set of wooden beams absorbed more. So by the time it got to the top, where most stuff would tip and topple and fall in on itself, it had lessened the vibrations of earthquakes so little that it allowed that top section to not shift as much. Like that's fucking genius shit. Yeah. It's, it seems very basic now. Like you can break it down to like bunting a ball and deadening the speed coming out of the ball with a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. But back then they had no fucking clue. And that's, that's what you were talking about as far as like the earthquakes that took them out down the line Mm -hmm. or kind of were the final nail in the coffin. They had to have known before to be able to use that because why? Where would you get that knowledge unless you were talking to places like Alexandria that or, were like, "Hey, we have this." this uh, we used to have this giant lighthouse, <laughs> and uh, not not so much anymore. It, and it could have been simply that that was the site of the original one. It toppled in an earthquake, and they're like, "Well, fuck! Like, how do we stop that?" And they looked around, like all the trees are still standing. Yeah, and they're like, they just kind of move and bend. They're a little bit more flexible. Like, what if we try to put some trees? inside this bitch so then they'll flex too like and it worked it's the same principles when you go drive over an overpass right before you go over an overpass there's rubber the the overpass isn't connected directly to each side of the road that is touching the ground there's essentially a it's not a it it is a gap kind of it's like a gasket kind of yeah but there's rubber bush it's not i don't know what it is it's rubber bushings on each side and basically those are made that in an earthquake or movement or when it swells in the winter time when stuff freezes that absorbs it and i mean that's that's like modern age stuff that we're still using to you know for our highways and things like that it's just i mean and it one more thing just it's gonna be more and one more thing i'm just saying that um so on top of one of the mounts surrounding the valley, they actually built a, the only way I can describe it is actually kind of like a spa bathhouse, like a larger one. And it was heated. And I'm not talking like heated, like, oh, you know, because it's on the top and the sun and everything like that. Um, they, <coughs> Some motherfuckers in metal bathtubs underneath. I don't think Fire. it was. I don't think it was metal. But what they did is, so they would construct <laughs> it kind of like they constructed the reservoirs. I would imagine they had mm. a couple separate pools, and what they did <laughs> is they created chambers underneath each of the pools, and they they were like, well, we can't just have people getting into like super hot water. We got to warm people up to it. So they would have the pools at different degrees of warmth. So like the first one you get into, you would chill out for a while. Second would be warmer. Kind of like the hot springs up, you know? Yeah. But how would you do that? Okay. 
So what they did is they had under underground, they basically had a, what I can only really describe as like maybe like a boiler room and they would create these big fires in there. And underneath the largest of the pools, which was supposed to be the hottest one, they basically had a big chamber that kind of it, the way they created it and they dug it up, it almost spanned the whole length underneath of the pool. Yeah. And they would have like stone pillars under there to support the blocks and everything. They would pump all of the smoke and the heat from the fire and direct it into this chamber. So not only that is heating the stones underneath, it's heating all of these pillars, which are then radiating heat and heating this pool above. The chamber would then branch off a little bit into the next pool and it would go ahead and heat that. But because it was further away from the source of the heat, you were getting less heat going to that. Then there was a hole in that one underground that lit a little bit more heat into that third pool, which was the first one, which would be cooler. I wonder how they would regulate the sandstone just not taking the heat from the main fire. You know what I mean? What do you mean? Like if you have the largest fire in the middle. Mm-hmm. How would you be able to not have that leach no, out? No, it wasn't in the, the middle. Other... It was closest over to the side of the biggest, hottest pool. Okay, so the big one wasn't in the middle. No, no, no. It was So it was like smaller one, cooler, medium-sized one, kind of warm, largest one down here, hottest. And then next to that underground would be where they built the fire. That would also make it to where, you know, it wasn't heating everything under this complex because it had like a um, structure built over it, like where people could just like chill out and get out of the sun and everything. And then the backdrop of that was the entire city of Petra below. It had just this, like you, it almost like, you know, when you see people like with an infinity pool and you're looking out Mm -hmm. over like the city, it almost kind of seemed like that to where when you'd be sitting down waiting to get in the pool, you could look behind you and the entire city of Petra was just laid out. And like, imagine being, and they said that it was of course for like either the, the royalty or the wealthiest people in the city, but just imagine like being able to just go up there and be like, no, nah, we're going up to the bathhouse. We're just going to ball out for the evening. Take us a couple skins of wine up there, get crazy. Maybe a little bit of the, what is it deemed he came, come from the bush that grows in that region. It's the acacia, acacia, the acacia tree. Acacia is a wood. I don't it know, is, but if you burn it, that's where you get DMT. some type of like psychoactive i can't remember what comes out of it it's like the acacia tree or the acacia bush or something like that but yeah you just see the if that's fucking... true i got an acacia spoon that i cook with i want to see how that goes there you go just leave it in a little bit longer <laughs> let that thing heat up but so yeah i mean this was a you know a city that it's like you know of course its primary goal is survival but at the same time like it was definitely a place for wealthy wealthy people i i can't stress this enough while we're talking about the architecture the tools that they had to make all these caves and caverns and aqueducts and all that stuff is still the same thing that we use today hammer and chisel for some of that shit hammer and chisel you you're in there i don't know how in the world they had that many people to be able to do that stuff like talking about um the the treasury and all that and just the way that that was built mm-hmm. takes a lot but to build these aqueducts through there you have to send a human through there with a chisel to be able to do that like there's no long range reach or anything like that that's just literally one dude climbing through a tunnel chiseling his way out and sending that material out of his tunnel well and the they showed um the actual like uh, aqueduct system that came down the seek for like drainage and rerouting. Uh-huh. And it was like 
fuck, it's almost like something you would see it like waiting in queue at a Disneyland, right? You know how everything's very elaborately built around you? Uh-huh. You could just be walking, and then literally if you walked over to the side, sitting about four feet off the ground was a ledge, and then on the inside of that ledge was basically just a channel dug out of the solid rock. So They still had underground, though, too. No, they still, they still did, because that's how they accessed the water in the reservoirs that all the water that sunk through the sandstone would develop it. So they still had to dig in, and you had to fucking locate them. Yeah. Like, how, you just go around, like, knocking on the rock, and you just hear, like, a... You're like, oh, this one's hollow. There must be water in here. Uh, well, they... Uh, just to talk about some of their acumen, as far as, like, the way that they did it, and this will still intertwine into the way that they built these underwater things like you're talking about, but they built themselves to be able to survive if they had to leave. Like, they had not really bug-out shelters, but they would go out into the desert and they would dig till they hit solid. Mm-hmm. And then they would dig out these little underground reservoirs that then they would stucco like they did before. They would fill those up with water if they ever had to leave the city for mm-hmm. any reason or if they were out like tending to their camels or anything mm-hmm. like that. Then they would build them back up with a, a lid they would build them back up to the height and they would leave a discerning marker that only they knew about yeah. for these just underground wells, basically, or underground reservoirs that they dug to be able to leave the city and still be able to that survive. That stuff that they carried over from that like nomadic time yeah. is they said that one of the reasons that the Nabataeans were so successful is because anytime someone would try to come and attack a caravan of theirs or like their village or anything, they didn't have to fight. They just had to, they could almost just disappear into the desert. And what's going to happen when, you know, an uh, enemy tries to pursue them for a day and runs out of water and doesn't know how to have, find this, and the Nabataeans are two miles ahead of them being like, we're going to hang a left here because we got some water stashed away. Like yeah. they were just able to survive. So that kind of stuff was always on their minds that they would go back to what they knew. Hey, if you're going to attack us, we're not going to stay here. And we're, we're wealthy. Like we might have some soldiers and everything, but we can just bounce out until you get bored and then come back in. Yeah. I just think that they didn't like conflict and that's a perfect segue into this next little bit. But as you were talking about with Alexander the great dying, Mm -hmm. it basically left his whole empire up for grabs. And there was a guy that was in the area. It's escaping me where he came from. I want to say he might've come from out. No, it wasn't Alexandria. But around there, his name was Antigonus. Yeah, it was Ptolemy and Seleucus that went to, like, Alexandria and everything. I think Antigonus was someone that stayed back and... Saudi Arabia-ish, I want to say. He was in the area, yeah. He wasn't... He... Macedon? Macedon? No, that was still too close to Greece. He he was one of the guys, though. Like, there were five or six guys that just carved up Alexander's, and they were all his, like, bodyguard or generals and yeah. stuff like that. And Antigonus was a general. He was trying to reclaim everything that Alexander had to create kind of the same Macedonia city-state again that they had had. And he was clearing the way through a lot of people. He had his eyes set on Petra. He knew of their wealth and their riches. And at he at knew- this point, you can't accumulate that much wealth. You can't pull in people from other cultures to help design your city yeah. and make it this. It, the best way to describe it is it, they call it the Rose City mm-hmm. because of everything. But this was literally, in the most literal way, this was a jewel in the desert. This was an oasis. And places like this, like 
how Alexander learned about Babylon. Word of mouth. All it took was a couple people being like, no, there's this place like in the desert. It's this fabulous like rose-colored city and everything. Yeah. Eventually, before someone's going to be like, okay, I've heard this from a couple people. This has got to be true. Let's go find this place and let's go fucking take it. You have a garden out in the desert. There has to be something there that we yeah. need. So he sends um, his general, and his general's name was Athenus. Athenus took 4,600 men. He took, it was 4,000 foot soldiers and I think 600 that were on like horseback. Or something like that. Cavalry, cavalry, yeah. And they head for Petra. Well, when they get to Petra, all the men in the city are out doing business. I don't know exactly where I they were. I heard that. I don't know what that was. Yeah. It's just like, all right, it's, uh, I, I see it as another Flintstones thing. You hear the fucking. Boys weekend. You hear the whistle in the town for the work and all the guys are just like, later, we'll see you in a couple <laughs> days. I it, Somehow all the men were gone. And this was a, a secondhand account from, I don't remember which philosopher, but it was somebody that had seen it. Um, Pliny? Could have been. I want to hear I heard the name Pliny, like yeah. Pliny the Elder. I know there were a couple of them. So uh, Athenius and all of um, Antigonus's forces get there. They realize that this place is just wide open for business. Uh, they start killing people that couldn't defend themselves. They just start ransacking this whole place. And um, all the frankincense and myrrh that they had there, they said that they took out as much frankincense and myrrh as their horses could carry. And silver, a ton of silver. I want to say it was like 18,000. Whatever they considered pieces. They all have a different name for it. Like, but basically pieces or units, units is units of silver, whatever they weighed them by a a shit ton. Yeah. a, A very large amount. And basically just robbed them of everything that they could carry. And along with that, they took all their women to try to take them back and sell them into slavery. Mm -hmm. The ones that they didn't kill, I'm sure they took the children too. Uh, So all the Nabataean men get back to the city. They're like, oh shit, what happened? Where's our stuff? Not only that, where's where's my wife and kid? (laughs) Why isn't dinner on the stove? Yeah. So some of the surviving people that were wounded or that were on their way out uh, told them that these people showed up. They came after us. Um, Antigonus's forces just came through and ransacked the city. They took all the women. They went that away. So it, at this into point, into the desert, <laughs> yeah. like back across the desert to take these people. They're like the desert, you say? Mm-hmm. I, our playground. So they finally, Athenius's troops have to stop for the night. And uh, there was something different about what they said because um, Athenius's troops were on horseback. Mm-hmm. Whereas all the Antigone or, uh, wow. Nabataeans. Nabataeans were on camels. That's why they could catch them. So yeah, they could move faster through the desert. Yeah. It was almost like they could cover twice the ground or something. I I don't know how that works because I've seen camels run and I've seen horses run and I feel like horses run a lot faster. It's, It's an efficiency thing. Like camels are very quick, but it's almost a, um, yeah, it's an efficiency thing. So the whole point is, is like camels are made for that. So their, you know, their hooves are thicker. thicker. They're meant to spread. So you think like a of a snowshoe, except like a sand that, shoe. That's exactly what okay. it is. So if you really think about it, you go walk through snow in your boots and it's, you know, a few inches deep. You might not tire out for a while, but that's going to wear on you eventually having to pick your feet up and everything aside from that makes having a fuckload of sense now that you say it that way. Yeah. And then camels essentially were just built for endurance like that. 
plus you're not having to worry about them slowing down due to exhaustion, due to lack of water. I mean, they're literally built for that. Plus, yeah, they're carrying it in their humps on their back. Yeah, and you're dealing with fucking like desert people who come from nomadic <laughs> desert people. They they probably got back out there in their camels and just kind of fucking stretched out there like, I remember this. Like, I feel like ancestral DNA going through me right now. Let's go fucking hunt down these motherfuckers. And that's what they did. They found the raiding party and along the way they were sending scouts out to other kind of small villages around there saying, Hey, these guys stole our people in Petra. You need to come help us. You see some weird looking dudes with people that look like us. Uh Which way did they go? They showed up with 8,000 troops Mm -hmm. and just absolutely massacred them. They ended up, I think, what does the board say? There was 50 that escaped on horseback. I think that's what it was. Out of the 4,600 troops that they had. And after they smoked them and sent everybody back that they or that could get back, they go back to town, bring all the women back. I'm sure they had a, a good night's sleep that night. Um, then they send a letter to Antigonus and they're like, yo, we didn't beat the shit and kill everybody because we tried to overtake them. They showed aggression towards us. And so all we did was defend ourselves. So we just want to put in our standard ground We were ground just getting plea. our shit back. Yeah. Like, we stumbled upon these guys that just happened to have our wives and children. Oh, and by the way, they had, like, the all of our possessions from, like, the vaults of our city and mm. our home. Like, what are we supposed to do? Hey, guys, can we have it back? Well, and Antigonus knew that he had to kind of play into this. Because if he was to be seen as somebody that couldn't beat a small city full of desert people, mm-hmm. he was going to look bad. He had to save face. So he saved face by saying, I didn't send them on that mission. Um, I sent them out there with different orders. Athenius just went ahead on his own and did this by Listen, his own accord. Athenius, this guy's a, this guy's a loose cannon. <laughs> I told him several times. Between me and you? kind of glad you killed him yeah i said hey go out there see what these people about hey see if they're cool maybe establish trade with them i did not say take all their shit and kidnap their families i wouldn't do that just want to get that out there but clearly that wasn't enough because there was a second raiding party that antigonus really knew that he had to have some some top-notch guys on and he sent out his son demetrius and when we're talking about eight thousand people killing 46, 45, 50. That sounds like it's pretty easy. But since um, Antigonus was one of the generals for Alexander, Mm -hmm. all of Alexander's most prized fighters were in Antigonus's army still. Did they stay with him? Yeah. So he had the tops of the tops of army guys that conquered half the known world. Yeah. Yeah. So these weren't just kind of fallover, pushover guys. So Demetrius decided to lead 8,000 this time, and he leads them back to Petra. But what the um, Nabataeans had learned was they needed an early warning system. So like you were talking about where they would build the towers Mm -hmm. to be in as lookouts. They saw Demetrius coming this time. They lit the fires. They let the town know. And as they let the town know, um, everybody fled to a place that was called um, Ativia, I think, Ativa, something like that. But it was the highest point around Petra, and there was only one way in, 
and it was just straight uphill to this flat that was up there. Mm-hmm. And so Demetrius knew that he couldn't attack because all he he couldn't flank them, he couldn't overtake them because it was just a basically a, a road up to the top of this hill where everybody was. So he tries the first day, ends up failing the first day, comes back the second day for another raid, and somebody says, hey man, I get that you're here because your dad wants you to be here. Um, clearly you're not in a position to win this, and we have enough resources up here to where we can outlast you and survive. You don't know where our water is, so you're only going to be able to fight this fight for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. We can sustain ourselves up here for as long as we need to. Um how about we cut a deal? I send you back to your dad with a large amount of riches, frankincense and myrrh, probably some of the shit that you guys tried to steal from us the first time. We're willing to pay this debt in order for you to leave us alone. So finally, Demetrius realizing that that just wasn't going to happen. was like, all right, well, something's better than nothing. Oh, they didn't give him anything. He demanded it. So he, he demanded, basically, he found them on top of this hilltop ready. He launched some assaults on them. They repelled all the assaults. And then the next day, he, in the Greek world, Demetrius was known as the besieger. Ooh. He basically demanded political prisoners and gifts to be provided as tribute. He didn't receive the demanded tribute, and he withdrew. Plutarch, I think, is the guy that we were looking for, the Greek historian. Okay. Because he has a, they wrote, and this is the whole, victors write the history, or victors, the victors in the long run write the history basically wrote that by Demetrius's cool and resolute leadership, he so outrawed the barbarians that he captured from them 700 camels and great quantities of booty and returned in safety. So the way they wrote it, he basically just like pillaged the yeah. town and he was the victorious conqueror and everything like that. Not that he got paid off. And he came didn't back. get paid off. He just, he had essentially the Nabataeans in a position where they couldn't guard the city. So all they had to do as far as, um, Demetrius, they just looted it as they went back through, or they were looting it at the same time, and then they went back. He knew that he wasn't going to be able to kill anybody, so they took what they could get and mm-hmm. got out. Yeah, just uh, very interesting to hear, just, they didn't want to fight, they wanted to be left alone, they wanted to be peaceful, but at the same time, when they were tested and when they were attacked, it just wasn't... No, and Demetrius ended up going back, and he's like, hey dad, I did it, like... I got a bunch of stuff from him. He's like, okay, so you like conquered him and everything like that. Like that's our area now. And he's like, I got a bunch of stuff from him. He's like, I sent you there to take him out. And he's like, yeah, about that. He's like, I just got a bunch of stuff. He's like, I was only able to do that. So freaking Antigonus, he actually then sends another expedition. And the Nabataeans were like, are you fucking serious, man? Like we're tired of this. And so they basically killed most of the expedition with bows and arrows and then after that, Antigonus was like, I got other shit I'm handling right now. I can't deal with the, I can't deal with Petra anymore. We're and just busy in the north. We don't need to keep going west yeah. or east. You know what? We, I have decided <laughs> that I'm going to leave these people alone. They didn't have any impact on this. You know, they sp- spanked us three times. But you know what? I, I have bigger fish to fry. So I'm going to focus on that. Well, just their cunning is so much what kept them alive through that stuff. Because as we kind of sort of wind down to the end of it, um, the Roman (laughs) Empire knew that they needed to get that area because they needed to find new trade routes and they needed to cut their taxation. They're not going to pay. 
no, to it, travel through. If they deem that that land should be theirs or part of their empire, what they're not being like, well, but we have to pay to get through this part of our empire. Like that, that doesn't stand. Yeah, this isn't like old Rome. This is the new Roman regime that won out. So they're looking to spread their, um, just their their, their hands empire. Yeah, everywhere they want their empire everywhere. So they sent a guy now or a guy down named Alias Gallus Gallus. I should have put a pronunciation guide on that. But he goes to Petra and they say, hey, we need to figure out how to get to your port, Lucia Come, can you show us? Um, we'll take you over. You can just do this the easy way. And the Nabataeans are like, easy way. And Rome just was okay with that. So they sent this guy out named Sileus. And Sileus takes Gallus, or Gallus, I think is how you say it, basically on a wild goose chase and a a trip that is only supposed to take so long. He sends him on twists and turns and there's people that are dying and people that aren't making this journey because the um, climb is so treacherous. He takes them on a 180 day excursion. They were gone for six months to try and get there. And uh, Galeas just like, I don't think we can do this. I don't think this is effective for us. If this is how it's going to be every single time, there's no way that this is going to work. Like Rome, Rome doesn't want this. How many times do you think like these people are coming back being like, how the fuck are these people living out there? Like, (laughs) like we, we can't live out there. Like, what do you want us to do once we take, take this area over? Like, you don't want to live out Uh, there. Like, what do you want this for? I want it because it's my right. (laughs) And, um, Galeus going back to Rome was like, this is a bad idea. We just got to go. We got to get back. Um, he just told his guys to actually just follow the roads. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how they didn't see the roads before. They're like, hey, why aren't, the, why aren't we going on that worn path? It only took them 60 days to get back following the road. So it took them a third of the time to get back to where they started. That it took them 180 days. It's trial and error. Well, and on this trip back, he's like, those motherfuckers fooled me. Yeah. We could have taken this whole way back that we just got back out there. There's no way. So he goes back to Rome, um, reports his findings like, Hey, we need to take these guys out ASAP. Luckily, Rome falls into a war where they're fighting different factions of their own city. This is like when it was like what the Ptolemaic Wars. Yes. This, this is during that time when essentially all of the people that split up Alexander's, it might have been a generation removed from that or maybe a couple generations. But eventually all those people that had kind of like friendly agreements, like not to take over each other's territories, were just kind of like, I could probably take over that territory. Mm-hmm. So it was all out just chaos. Luckily, that drew them away from them for about 100 years. Which, to me, seems like forever, but to a civilization that's been around for that long, like, that's not a whole lot of time. No, not in the in the scheme of a human life. It sounds like a lot, but and in the span of our country, 100 years is a lot. But um, as far as these civilizations go, yeah, 100 years, I'm not saying it's the blink of an eye or anything, but, I mean, these a lot of these ancient civilizations develop over centuries. So it, it definitely seemed like a decent amount. Um and finally, when Rome got back around to annexing them, it was just such a simple process because uh, Raybel II died. He was the king of uh, the Nabataeans. Mm-hmm. And 
instead of them, instead of his son succeeding him and taking the throne, Rome was just like, yoink, we're going to sleep in, or we're going to slip in there. We're going to put our own royalty in there. Mm-hmm. We're going to have leaders. Interestingly enough, That's they when said... when you do it during a transition of power, when things are a little bit chaotic yeah. and everything. They said that normally when Rome would do something like this, the kings wow. would move into like senator type positions like a regional governor or something like that, they would still oversee the area, uh-huh. but it would be a situation where you're like, but you work for us now. Yeah. It's no longer just you calling the shots. Like you can run this place and everything, but you still got to answer for us and you got to pay us stuff. And and it, it was just that simple that they slipped in, but instead of the Royal family staying around, mm-hmm. they're just not heard from again. So they must've left or gotten out of there or something like well, that. Yeah, or if, just all well, killed. you got to imagine too, if you're essentially putting up, uh, you're putting a puppet leader in there is what uh-huh. you're doing. And you have an isolated kingdom that at some point is not going to have prompt Roman support and everything. You have a civilization or you have a populace there of 20 to 30,000 people. At some point, if the royal family's still hanging out there, how many loyalists are just going to mm. be like, you know, we could just boot these motherfuckers and just put you back in power, right? So I, it was probably something a little more like, hey, so you're no longer king anymore. And you probably need to fucking either kick rocks or we're going to have to. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the, the more safe choice to just to yeah. walk away. But a lot of the things that they did didn't really change. Like there was a, a shift in leadership with the, the puppet leader that you were talking about. But other than that, the hierarchy kind of stayed the same and they just sort of ran the same deal. Like mm-hmm. the city ran pretty much as usual. Except for Rome wasn't taxing anymore because they were the people that were transporting in and out so much that they weren't taking their money. So it was still pretty much the same for everybody that lived there, but they were starting to be taken over. And it it just, it seemed like that was sort of like the ending of it. Well, they even brought in like Roman, so it wasn't just like Roman soldiers and everything like that, the Roman leadership. They actually brought in like builders and stuff and they started to actually like, change buildings yeah. and do even more Rome and Greek type like structures and architecture and everything. And I think when that occurred too, cause there was at some point like minor exoduses of like people that were like native Nabataeans yeah. that just got to the point where they were like, this isn't like, we're just going to stay at home anymore. Yeah. So we're you had people the that were then life. starting to kind of, I think you had less people coming in to live there and more people coming out. So the population did start dwindling. Well, and along with that, kind of one of the feathers in the Nabataean cap was when the Romans came into a new conquered area and they saw like how the city was run, they would go through all of the plumbing systems and update them with Roman engineering. Yeah. And just Rome's had plumbing for fucking forever. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of... Um, a master of it. Actually, you'd be okay. At this time, they'd had plumbing for a while, but at the time that the Nabataeans were first developing yeah. their version of the aqueduct system, that's when Rome had actually introduced like their first aqueduct for like plumbing. Well, they also were introducing it into a much easier place. They too. were, and their technology in doing it and the the way that they did it um, was. On, on a grander scale, I think it had to be because you weren't able to carve aqueducts for transport of water mm. into these hillsides or cliff sides. You were also needing to transport it to a lot more people. Yeah. Rome. It wasn't this 20,000, 30,000 people. But as you're coming in there, like you're saying, you're Roman, you're like, eh, we can, we can bump this up a little bit. We can fix this for you guys. Like, it was fine the way it was going. Well, 
they didn't. They didn't make one change to any of the plumbing systems around town because they said that it was already done as efficiently as they could. That makes sense, too. So just their engineering was so good that they were able to do essentially as good or even I'm sure it might have even been better. They're like, holy mm-hmm. shit, how did they do this? How can we use this? Well, that's the whole point. This stuff may have been updated by the Nabataeans dependent on need and, you know, yeah. advances in technology tools that they received. At the same time, Rome was really advancing in regards to this. So if they come and they're like, oh, this shit that you guys, you know, integrated into your society like hundreds of years ago is still at the like neck cutting edge and, and we really can't improve upon this says, you know, about how advanced they were at the time. So like we talked about, that was sort of like the first end to the Nabataeans was being taken over by the Romans mm-hmm. and having to live under a rule that just didn't ever feel like them. And eventually, as you alluded to earlier, trade routes started becoming more water-based yeah. and on ships. So these shipping lanes started to become less and less useful, which then led to less and less people coming through, which then it didn't really fall into disrepair. It just didn't have the glitz and glamour and gleam that it did before. Oh, it, it, it had a pretty rapid decline as soon as it got under Roman rule. Maybe not so much for the advancement. It's just I don't think, you know, you become so accustomed to not having to answer to anybody. You know, I'm assuming that, you know, although the Nabataeans and Petra did have a ruling family, a royal family, it would stand to reason with his advances are that they did have some type of representation within. Even if they didn't have that representation within, you were basically a secluded kingdom where you had a royal family ruling over twenty to 30,000 people. Chances are that those people are going to have a voice that the royal family is going to listen to because it's for the good of a not insanely small, but a smaller group of people, you're able to go ahead and meet the needs of those people a bit easier. You want your kingdom to prosper. Well, and the other thing too, I'm sure that drove them away was not only did they have the, the Royal families and the kingships and all that, but they also still had their own religion. Mm -hmm. And as they saw the Roman religion sort of introducing or replacing theirs, they actually had a, interestingly enough, um, they had a, a kind of a main God that his name was, um, Deshara. It was a Zeus type situation. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So very sort of Greek type. What do they call that when you have multiple gods? It's poly. It, there's a polytheistic, yeah, polytheistic multiple gods, but yeah. it was set up in such a way, like you just said, like he was Zeus. And then there were other lesser gods below him that Zeus was basically like their father. Well, I mean, and there was direct references to either Greek or Roman like deities or figures because that treasury building that you first see when you're walking through the Canyon that had carvings on in two of like the recesses. One was Castor and one was Pollux. And I probably should have saw research who Castor and Pollux were, but just from the names, I know that that's something within Greek or early like Roman or something like that culture as far as some, Mm -hmm. not deities, but like well-known figures or demigods or something. So there had to have been influence from other countries into that. I wonder. So if these things are getting built by people that they're bringing in to hire, do you think it's like a calling card? They're just like sneaking sneak, shit yeah, in there. sneaking shit it's in It's like there. an Easter egg. Like it, Exactly. And they're asking, like, the king is like, "What are who are these two guys? They're like, oh, these are two of your gods. And, like, they don't really look like our gods. And he's like, 
are bad. Like, just pretend that's what they look like. Deshara just came up with this plan. Yeah, I can't re-carve these because it'll ruin the whole facade, but I think it looks pretty good the way we did it. <laughs> so they, I'm sure that was another large part, too, was just their, their religion, kind of their... All the drivers to be the thriving city that they were were just gone. They didn't have a royal family. Their religion was either being tweaked or replaced. It just had to feel completely different. And then kind of the ultimate end, which I I don't know how great the source was because it was, I didn't see if it was on the documentary who it was, but Nabataean descendants have still lived like around Petra mm-hmm. until 1985. Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's surprising, but I mean, if those people know how to survive out there and it's all they know, but that's the thing is like, they, it was like unchanged by time. Like I'm sure they had more it's updates. like North but, Sentinel Island and places that, you know, yeah. certain technologically advanced stuff never really reached. It was just a simpler life. They didn't have electricity. There's just no fucking way that they had electricity. Yeah. So the fact that that is the way that it is, but 363 AD, um, there was an earthquake called the Galilee earthquake. I mm-hmm. guess it originated in the Sea of Galilee. Well, and that's the thing is the those tectonic plates, mm-hmm. the ones that created that beautiful sandstone and pushed it up and made Petra possible. Those they take it Those away. plates are yep yep. The plates giveth and the <laughs> plates taketh away. And so, yeah, like you're saying, that earthquake, not only did it destroy a lot of the buildings, didn't destroy the buildings that were, I mean, I'm sure it damaged them, but the ones that were built into the rock face left them remarkably intact. Very, very durable. The ones that were just built on the ground, um, those took a lot of damage. The big thing it did is it crippled the water management system. Because you have terracotta in these, as these pipes, those things aren't going to be able to withstand that kind of a shake. They don't have enough give to them to be able to yeah. do it. So you get those mains, those water mains, essentially, underneath the earth that crack. All of a sudden, that water stops flowing. No, and I mean, and being that that's the requirement of having a you know people there, you're like, well, couldn't they just fix it? It was an earthquake. Sure, I'm sure if they had time to fix it, but putting yourself in a situation where water is essentially vital to survival even if it took you using those tools, it took 200 years, essentially, they say, to complete Petra, what it was at its peak or whatnot. Even if it took three, four, maybe five years, a fraction of that 200 years to repair the water management system, what are you doing for water in those five years? It's just not sustainable. Well, and what's the point of having a a section and a trade route that's not existent anymore either exactly and at this point being under roman rule and everything guess whose responsibility it was to then probably repair all of this it was up to rome and if rome has the option of saying like fuck this place is pretty messed up it's going to take a lot of work to do this be like eh, and don't worry about it yeah for what stuff stuff's already moved on at that point rome has other things that they're dealing with at this point and it probably just became too big of an issue for them and so at that point i mean that's pretty much when the city was was abandoned. Like you said, there were certain people that still stayed there throughout the next, you know, hundreds of years. Nomads would actually take up residence there. It had travelers that came through, no one establishing like a permanent foothold or permanent residence. In the 12th century, crusaders actually built a fortress or built fortresses around the Petra area and everything. Huh. Um, but those had to end up actually being abandoned as well after the crusades had ended. There wasn't much point in them staying around. And then pretty much as a result of that, the the location of Petra was actually lost until the 19th century. Like, lost 
to those who were outside of the area. I'm Correct. Sure. I mean, of course, people that were still natives to that area and traveled that area and everything still knew about it, but essentially lost to civilization the outside, outside of society outside of that area. Which is insane to just think that, bloop. Like, we forgot, we forgot about it. Just wiped off the map completely. Uh, did you... I'm really going to butcher this. Did you hear about the guy in 1812? Yeah, Johann Ludwig Burkhardt. Yeah. So that guy pulled a Dolezal to get in there. He what? Pulled a Dolezal. You remember Rachel Dolezal? No. The white chick that darkened up her skin and was a member of the NAACP. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's what he... Yes. He Dolezal'd himself. Do you also know a very weird fact about Dolezal? I don't. She's on OnlyFans. Well, that's not surprising, man. What in the world is that woman putting on OnlyFans? For as much shit as as the world gave that woman. I'm just telling you everything. (laughs) It's it's crazy. Is on there. But that's basically what he did. He he changed himself into Arab. He gave himself Arab features to essentially allow him to kind of travel around that area with lesser risk. But he was still a white dude. Like, oh, yeah. you, you can't change that. I'm not, listen, I'm not defending this dude. I'm just spitting facts about he named the reason him, he would have to do that. He named himself a sheikh, too. Like, he was sheikh something or other. Like, he gave himself in Rome, a very prestigious name. Or in Petra or anything. Um, I wonder kind of like, so I'm assuming it wasn't just him wandering around and being like, do, 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 do. He was looking for something. He was either looking for something or he was, he was hearing rumors or was like you were saying, actively going out there searching for maybe something he didn't know. And was just like, have you seen anything crazy out here? Is there anything in the desert that should be of interest to me? And over the course of conversation, they're like, well, there's this city that used to be out there. If you go that way and it's in a canyon, he's like, cool. He said something about wanting to sacrifice an animal or something like that, and they or he asked around. Yeah, like he a wants to bring site. a goat with him, in, with the intent of sacrificing <laughs> it in the honor of like Aaron's tomb or or something like that. They're just like, hey, uh, Whitey wants to go out in the desert and sacrifice this goat. Where should we take him? And I'm sure the people are like, I bet he'd be cool with Petra. I bet he'd like to see Petra. Mm-hmm. And they just took him right there. Yeah. How nuts would that be that you just get you're playing that game and you just get brought to this ancient city that is supposedly lost by the modern world? It's got to be the same. It's got to be comparable to when that guy they walked him up to Machu Picchu, and he looked around. Yeah, but but too like dialed up because like with Machu Picchu, he walked up and he had to kind of walk into it, and then he looked around and saw the overgrowth, but saw what was underneath and the structures, and he's like, "Oh shit!" Because you see pictures of. Machu Picchu, when it was first discovered, completely overgrown by plants. And then you see what they cleared off and you uh-huh. can see it as it is today. This guy walks through the canyon and comes around this corner and just is like, the fuck <laughs> is this? It's just preserved, even better condition than it is today because tourists haven't had a chance to uh-huh. fucking chunk stuff out of it, touch it and do all that kind of shit. And he's just like, the fuck? The guy with him has got to be like, right? <laughs> yeah. He's like, you think this is fucking cool? He's like, let's fucking keep going. And then walks him out of the canyon, and he turns around, and he's like, what the fuck is this place? He's like, oh, yeah, this is just like, I sometimes bring my goats here, my camels here to get water and some stuff. Yeah, we, we come up and hotbox inside the treasury. Like, we, we mm-hmm. come up and smoke our weed here. <laughs> the guy's like... We're going to set the hookah up in the, in the old mausoleum, <laughs> and then we're going to go play, uh, play catch in the, the amphitheater. 
just absolutely mind-blowing. Got to be one of the coolest accidental discoveries that's ever happened. I mean, it gets, they said that, like, uh, up kind of currently now, like, they get around, like, a million visitors per year to Petra, which, I mean, it doesn't sound like a ton, but getting there is not easy. No. Like, you got to get into Jordan. You got to be able to then travel to Petra, which is not near the capital of Jordan. And then not only that, but they're not taking vehicles at this place. You're not getting there. You literally have to walk the three quarters of a mile through the canyon. I'd happily do it. Yeah, it's probably almost equivalent to climbing Everest now. Just with the... No, more people, I mean, go see Petra, hands down, than go... Yeah, but as far as, like, getting there, because, like, it's still tough, but it's not nearly as tough as it used to be. Yeah. I think it's probably a little bit easier than Everest. Just from a, a weather perspective, <laughs> like an accessibility perspective. One's super hot. Fat one's people really, aren't really walking through cold. the desert to get there. Huh? Fat people aren't walking through the desert to get there. They're I'm not, sure you have to be cars fit to get and there. in shape to... Well, yeah, but they don't have to walk from a certain... Like, they can take vehicles all the way up to a certain point. They just don't take them, like, through the canyon and shit. Yeah, maybe. It's still... that That has got to be, like, one of the coolest feelings is to just walk and see that and be like... And feel completely, without having engines around you and stuff like that, just feel like you're fucking back in time. Shit's 2,200 years old. Yeah. And that's the technology level that they were at. Imagine those people with an extra 2,200 years of advancement. Yeah. It'd be like goddamn Wakanda. I just, <laughs> that, that that's I think a, an apt an apt comparison to that. Maybe not quite Wakanda because the whole reason for advancement was the vibranium. Yeah, but Wakanda adjacent, close, very yes. close. Yeah, maybe they could find some sort of cool sandstone that's that's like vibranium. That that could that could have helped them with the quarries or some shit. Who knows? Um, but yeah, this is this just isn't you know you got to kind of search for this topic. But, you know, again, one of the new seven wonders of the of the world, um, a, a lost civilization that wasn't actually rediscovered by modern society until 19 or 18, sorry, 1812 is when it was. Not, I hate the fact they do that shit. Mm-hmm. 1812 is the 19th century. I don't like it. <laughs> it doesn't make fucking sense, man. Yeah, we're also born at zero and not one like other places. So, OK. I think one has a further, further reaching implication than the whole, the, the zero to one year comparison. Um, but just, I mean, fascinating, just insanely fascinating when you stop to think about it. And then just almost in the scope of time, it's almost a finger snap and a blink of the eye. Like this place just drops off the map. Petra plays into our ethos of this podcast so perfectly because it's just the, the wonderment of history. I think that we enjoy the most. And Mm -hmm. that's why like conspiracy theories are awe inspiring. Yeah. And it's lost history. Yeah. Like all the crazy thing about Petra too. Like I loved one of the things I loved doing about like the Incans when we did that was that Incan like history and culture, because people stayed in that region and close to Machu, close-ish to mm-hmm. Machu Picchu enough to know where it was and then all that kind of stuff, you still had people that had Incan ancestry that knew the stories, that knew the history. Like, that stuff is known, like the whole story about the brothers against each other and the conquistadors and all that kind of shit. Petra is almost like, it's like they give you the first chapter of the book and then they give you, like, the last three chapters of their book and then they're just like, what do you think fucking happened? Choose your own adventure through it, this. Exactly. It's going to end here, and it starts here, but how did they do all this kind of stuff? And and just the fact that not only was it so incredible, but 
the preservation of it when it comes down to like looking at other historical sites, like we look at things like the pyramids and we're like, whoa, those are like super intact and preserved and everything. It's like, no, not, not so much. And the only reason it's like that is because guess what? Like people can't fucking walk off, you know, you can take chunks out of a giant piece of like granite uh-huh. and everything, but to, to decay and to, you know, they're so fucking big and grandiose that they can't be worn down enough to where you couldn't recognize to where it's anymore. noticeable in your yeah. lifetime yeah. to see and everything. But to see that when, if you were to look at the comparison of what the ancient pyramids actually look like with their smooth sides and the capstone and the, the white color, you're just like, oh, this definitely is not like that was. You go to Petra and with the exception of like the ruins within the valley floor that have been destroyed over time by natural occurrences and everything, you look around the things that are built into the mountainside, the amphitheater, the treasury, the tombs, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, it almost feels like you could just walk into this and set up fucking camp and just stay there for a while, which would be fucking nuts. To camp out in one of the little houses or areas that were built into the wall. Set up lights around you to light it all up around yeah. you at night and everything and just be able to fuck. A night is an Abitian. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be stoned out there, dude. Yeah. That would have to be. You'd have to. I, I realize that the Middle East has extremely strict... But I'm assuming I keister it for that trip, just to bring well, it up. <laughs> I mean, in that region, being the Middle East, you might be able to just score some there or anything like that. They're like, "You're you're taking a tour of Petra? Do you need anything to help with the tour?" And you're like, "What do you mean?" And you're like, "I got gotcha. you." John Stewart's just there. He's like, "Hey, man, you ever seen Petra?" You're like, "No, I'm going to see it." You ever seen Petra on weed? God, I love that. All right, man. You got any final thoughts on this? No, no. Good episode. I felt felt very good about doing this research. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully you uh, learned something, had a good time listening to this, and uh, we'll see you next week. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.